Amen. It is indeed a sure and glorious hope that we have in Christ because of His finished work at the cross. And as we think about the hope we have, we understand that it's because of the unchanging nature of God's promise to us. It's because God in His providence brings about, brings everything to pass that He promises will come to pass. We've seen that as we've been looking in Luke's gospel the last couple of weeks, that, that all that happened surrounding the, the birth of Christ, all these things that kind of led up to his birth, were enacted by God's divine providence. So now we come to Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Luke 1, 57 through 80. And as we look at this story surrounding the birth of John the Baptist, what I want to look at, there's a number of things that we could pull out from this, but what I want to focus our attention on today, focus our time on, is responding to divine providence. How do we respond to divine providence? As we've seen in the, this lengthy first chapter of Luke, the Lord's providence, His sovereign power at work are, are just so plainly and clearly evident through the circumstances of the conception of John the Baptist, the conception of Jesus, and now we'll see that even in the birth of John, and of course we'll see it in the birth of Jesus, which we will look at, Lord willing, next Sunday in Luke chapter 2. Now, these verses are kind of a climactic display of God's providence because we see the Lord's providential hand come to fruition, the work that he's doing in bringing John the Baptist into the world as the forerunner of Christ, that work comes to its fruition here as John is born, as he is given his name, and then as his father, as we'll see in the text, goes on to prophesy about what John the Baptist will do and who he will be, a prophet, a forerunner of the Messiah. Now, I want to define one term before we go any further. Um, you're probably familiar with the word sovereignty and providence. They are, in a way, similar ideas, similar concepts, but there's actually a real clear distinction, a real clear difference, and we, we kind of tend to use them almost interchangeably. But looking at this text, we need to understand the difference. So sovereignty, when we say that God is sovereign, what we mean is that He is the ruler. He is the sovereign. He has every right and every power to do whatever he so chooses to do. That is his sovereignty. It is his divine right as God and creator. His providence then, and you can find various definitions and, and to just kind of boil it down, his providence is what uh, Piper would call purposed sovereignty. It, it is the Lord providing to accomplish his sovereign will. You think about Abraham and Isaac as they climb the mount. Abraham is sure that the Lord will provide. That is God's providential hand, what the Lord does to accomplish his purposes. MacArthur describes it as the Lord using natural things, natural situations, natural causes to accomplish a divine plan. So it's not the miraculous the, the conception of Jesus is miraculous, but it's not the miraculous that is the Lord's providence. It's the natural means, the natural causes, the natural situations. And so 
what we see surrounding the birth of John the Baptist is a bunch of natural things that point to the glory of God, the glory of Christ, and the Lord's power in bringing about the forerunner to the Messiah. So let's look at our text. We're going to read the whole thing to kind of set it before our minds, and then we'll ask the Lord's help as we study His Word today. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. This is holy, inerrant, and inspired Scripture. It says, Now that the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son, her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and as they were going to call him Zacharias, after his father. But his mother answered, and she said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And so they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he, Zacharias, asked for a tablet and wrote, as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them. And these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of God was certainly with him. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers And to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts, until the day of his public appearance in Israel. This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts. Now let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and we just want to give you praise. Lord, how great and glorious, how strong and mighty you are, You're exalted in the heavens. You do as you please. Lord, if you had not chosen to create a world, none of the things that we see, none of the things that have come to pass would have come to pass. 
For by you, through you, and to you are all things. Lord, it is the word of your power that holds all things together. It is by the work of your Holy Spirit that that glorious and finished work of Christ is applied to us, whereby we are given new hearts, whereby our eyes are opened in faith, whereby we are granted repentance and, and given new life eternal life in Christ. It's by your Spirit that those things are done, and it's by your Spirit, Lord, that your Word is brought to bear upon our hearts and lives. And so it's now, Lord, that we ask that you would indeed write your Word upon our hearts. Lord, I pray that if there are any within our number today who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, Pray that today would be the day of salvation, that stony hearts would be broken and replaced with a heart of flesh, that blinded eyes would be opened to see the glorious things that you have done. Lord, for those of us who are alive in Christ, I pray that we would see a glimpse of his glory. Pray that you would take your word and sanctify us by it. Sanctify us in the truth. Lord, as we consider your power and your deeds and your sovereign operation in the world and in our lives, may we be driven to this right and proper response, responses that are seen throughout our text today. Lord, would you help us by the powerful working of your Spirit Would you help us to be humble and to receive the truth? Lord, would you show us our sin and grant us repentance? Would you show us areas where we need to let go of the things of this world and rest in and rely upon your sovereign and powerful working? Lord, would you fix our eyes upon Christ for as we think about your providence, as we think about the things that can so challenge us in this life, Lord, where can we go? Where can we look but to fix our eyes upon Christ, to see his work, to see that he is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd who will keep us, who will lose none that are his. Lord, may we strive to imitate his example and lay our lives down upon your altar so that you are able to use us as you please. Lord, we ask for the help of your spirit. And we ask this, Lord, not for our sakes, but for the glory of your name. Lord, for you are worthy to receive all blessing and honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we come to the text, really there's two goals in mind. Um, One of them is a goal that we have every week as we study God's Word, and that is to see Christ, to see His glory on display, and and to glorify and to praise Him, to, to glory in His redemptive work. So that's one goal. A second goal is to recognize the providential hand of God and to see from these examples in Holy Scripture, how we ought to respond to divine 
providence, how we ought to give the Lord glory and praise for a sovereign and powerful working. So, so that's the two goals today. We can kind of press those together and come up with a main thought, a, a main argument for our time today. And what we see is that those who are redeemed by Christ must respond to His providence by rejoicing in His mercy. We respond by submitting to His will and His plan. And we respond by declaring His revealed and saving truth. When you see the Lord's hand of providence, if you are in Christ, that should be your desire. To rejoice, to submit, to obey, and to proclaim. To proclaim the glorious truth of Christ. So... This response is going to be outlined kind of with five actions, five things that we should strive after, five things that we should strive to do in response to the Lord's divine providence. We begin at verses 57 and 58. Again, we're, just, we're, we're seeing these examples, the examples of oftentimes holy people, people set apart by God to show us how we respond. And firstly, we see that point that we must rejoice in God's mercy, verse 57 and 58. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. She gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her, rejoicing with her. Now think about the context of Elizabeth in this pregnancy. Back to the beginning of Luke chapter 1, um, Elizabeth and Zacharias were considered to be righteous people. They were righteous in the sight of God. They were advanced in age. They were, they were older. They were really beyond the years of childbearing, and they had prayed for years that the Lord would give them a child, and He had not yet done so. And even in that struggle, even in that turmoil, they were still actively, faithfully serving the Lord. It was when Zacharias was in the temple going about his priestly duties that the angel of the Lord visited him. So, so that, that shows the good, but then you remember Zacharias, when, when the angel told him that he would have a, have a son, he said, how can this be? How can I know this is true? He doubted the very messenger of the Lord as he was before the Lord giving sacrifices to God. So, so that's kind of the, the, the context. And just as a side note, let's understand the Lord's corrective discipline, for that's what this was in the life of Zacharias. He doubted the Lord and his mouth was stopped. His tongue was tied. He could not speak. And what we have to understand is we don't live in cowering fear of the Lord's discipline, but we do understand that God is holy and just and righteous, and he will discipline those whom are his. Zacharias was a son of the Most High. He was righteous in God's eyes, but he sinned. He doubted, he didn't have faith, and the Lord responded resoundingly. He stopped up his mouth, as we saw in our text, only for for a period, for nine to ten months, but he stopped up his mouth because he doubted. What we understand, what we can take away from that is to understand that even years, even years of faithfulness can come crumbling down in an instant of doubt in an instant of unfaithfulness, in an instant of sin. And and you might even go as far as to say that it was because of all that faithfulness that the Lord dealt so seriously with this sin of unfaithfulness from Zacharias. 
because he had walked with the Lord. He had no reason to doubt the Lord, and yet he did. And the Lord said, if that is going to be your heart, you will be disciplined. You will learn to have faith. And so just in the lead up here, we need to understand that to whom much is given, much is required. And even one sin can bring the Lord's discipline in our lives, and we must be on guard. We must understand that the Lord deals seriously with sin. And so that's the backdrop. We come to verse 57, and John the Baptist is born. He, and Elizabeth has been pregnant, and the Lord has faithfully answered their prayer. He has given them a child. And verse 58 says that her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her. So it's the Lord's great and magnificent power on, the, on display in the birth of John the Baptist. But the text tells us it wasn't just His power, it was His mercy. It was the Lord's compassion, His kindness, His pity towards those who are His people. And as we think about providence, as we think about the Lord's sovereign hand at work, we must understand that God is so merciful. As God's saint, surely you can think of numerous times that the Lord has displayed His mercy to you and in your life. And if you have trouble, if you are in Christ, I can point you to the cross. Because at the cross, justice and mercy have met together. Justice and mercy have kissed. The Lord's mercy is on display when Christ was crushed for your sins. So when you think about the Lord's providence, think about His mercy. Think about that all of creation really comes together in that moment. That is the focal point of all of history is when Christ earned redemption. Because this world was created for God's glory, and God is most glorified in saving His people. So we should also note that, that Elizabeth's family, they heard of, of God's mercy. They didn't hear of the birth of John, the text doesn't say, though I'm sure they did. They heard of God's Mercy. The, the telling of this story was not a telling of just some physical, temporal matter. It was a telling of a story that highlights the glory and goodness of God. That should be the goal of our lives. That should be our goal in every situation to see how can we point this back to the glory of the Lord? How can we show in this instance His compassionate kindness in answering the prayers of the saints? We have to wonder, have to ask, if sometimes do you think about and acknowledge the Lord's sovereignty? You think about and acknowledge His providence, but you fail to remember and tell yourself and believe the fact that God is also perfectly merciful. He, he is righteous. He is eternally faithful. So do we acknowledge the Lord's providence, but forget to acknowledge His mercy? And his faithfulness. If you're going to live under God's providence, and friends, we all do because the Lord is over, in, and through all things, we must acknowledge that providence, but we must also remember all of who God is. He's good, He is gracious, He's merciful, He is kind, He is faithful, He is just. He, he takes and exacts vengeance against 
sin. He condemns sinners who remain in their sin. But for us as God's people to walk in his providence, we must remember his great mercy. And Elizabeth did. Her, her friends and her relatives saw this mercy of God. And what was their response? The text tells us that they were rejoicing with her. They were rejoicing. They were filled with joy and praise to God corporately, together. Friends, this must be our response. We must be faithful to see the Lord's providence in our lives and then faithful to rejoice in the great mercies that He shows us. We must see His providence and remember that He is perfectly, perfectly merciful. Uh, I mentioned Piper earlier. He, he has written a book. It's kind of his magnum opus. It's called Providence. It's kind of the, the, the overall book of his entire ministry, I think you could say. And he begins that by saying that God has revealed his purposeful sovereignty, his providence. He has revealed his purposeful sovereignty over good and evil in order to put ballast in the battered boat of human faith put steel in the spine of human courage, to put gladness in the groans of affliction, and love in the heart that sees no way forward. That is God's providence at work. It is a mercy to, to hold you, to anchor you, to display His love to you while you walk through the trials and storms of life. You remember that the Lord is merciful that he is kind, as providence should, as Piper says, put steel in your spine. It should make you be courageous. It should make you desire to stand firm and stand against the storm so that you display how great the Lord is. The Lord's mercy has been revealed. His mercies are new every morning. Would you join with the Scriptures knowing those great mercies every morning, and cry out, rejoice, cry out and say, Great, O Lord, is thy faithfulness. So we must rejoice in God's mercy. Secondly, we see that we must obey God's commands, verses 59 through 63. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, he shall be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives called by that name. They made signs to his father, asking what did he want him to be named. Zacharias asked for that tablet, and he writes down, His name is John. Okay, so, so this is simple obedience but it's powerful obedience. So, so they come, uh, apparently the custom may, may have been on this eighth day when they came to circumcise, they would also give the child a name. And they come to do that, and it wasn't necessarily the standard practice of the day, but again, this is where you see God's providence at play. They come, and, and the men suggest a name to the mother and say, well, why don't you call him Zacharias after his mute and, and ailing father? Now, you remember back earlier in chapter 1, the angel had told Zacharias that his name was to be John. Well, Zacharias comes out of, the, out of the temple, out of offering sacrifice, and he's mute. But obviously that was communicated somehow to his wife. And so when this suggestion is made, she says, no, 
Absolutely not. His name will be John. So while this doesn't seem like a monumental act of obedience, friends, do we see that there is no small obedience to the Lord? The Lord requires faithfulness even in what we might consider the smallest and most unimportant of things. Kids, if you're listening, do you understand that there is no small act of disobedience to your parents? There is no small lie. There's no act of disobedience that the Lord will overlook. You are to honor your father and mother in all things, and to disobey is to dishonor the Lord. And that goes not only for the children, but for us as adults. There is no small obedience. There's no small sin. If you remember the Lord's holiness, you understand that there's no little breaking of his law. James tells us that if you keep the law in in all respects and yet stumble in one point, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. It's like a glass window pane. You might just throw one small rock in it, but as soon as you break that window, the whole thing shatters. You've broken the entire thing. You can't just say, oh, well, I'm going to give my life to the Lord except for this one small area. No, that's not salvation. That's not regeneration. That's not sanctification. The Lord requires that we lay down our entire life, that we take up the entire cross to follow Christ, that we are willing to hate mother and father, sister and brother, friend, whoever, to follow Christ. There's no small act of obedience. So Elizabeth says, no, we're going to name him John, and and these men overseeing the the ceremony of circumcision, say, okay, well, that's not good enough. Let's go ask the dad. Let's go ask Zacharias. And so they're making signs to him to ask what he wants to name the child. And and somehow he asks for a writing tablet. And he writes down very specifically, very specifically, his name is John. Now, think about, put yourself in Zacharias's shoes at this point. For nine, ten months, he has been mute. He's been unable to speak unable to communicate. And the flesh in you, the flesh in me, surely you can see how there could be some resentment. There could be some bitterness. There, there could be some, some areas where it then becomes hard to obey and hard to do the right thing. But look at what Zacharias does. That, I, this is fascinating, I, I think, to, to see. He doesn't just acknowledge what his wife said, you know, they come and they ask him. He doesn't just point to his wife and, say, and nod his head and kind of say, yeah, what she says. No, he asked for this tablet and he writes down, his name is John. He follows specifically in obedience to what the Lord has commanded him. And the people are all astonished. Now, we don't quite know maybe why they're astonished. Matthew Henry suggests that maybe Maybe there were even more difficulties than just being mute. Maybe Zacharias was also deaf and just couldn't communicate at all. And so this was almost a miracle that he got even this out. But, but really, let's not miss the great lengths that this man goes to to obey the Lord. How far do you go in striving to obey? How far do you go in cutting off the arm of the flesh? How active are you in striving to do all that the Lord commands? To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
See, it's not just these sins where you go and commit a deed that's against the Lord's word, but what about when you know the right thing to do but fail to do it? That as well as sin. How far do you go in your active obedience? That doesn't merit the Lord's favor, but in light of his providential working, do you see the response that we must obey? The circumstances here surely were not perfect. Nevertheless, this husband and wife strove. They labored with difficulty to obey, to honor the Lord, to do exactly as he had commanded. Takeaway here is that obedience always matters. There, there are many in our day who are very quick to assign issues to be a, a gray area or an area of Christian liberty. And Christian liberty exists. It's discussed in Scripture, so we know it exists. But people are so quick to take any little thing that they want to do that they might have a little gnawing in their conscience about, hey, maybe I shouldn't do that. And if you're in Christ, that's the Holy Spirit who is your conscience, who informs your heart and your mind. But so many are so quick to say, oh, it's a gray area. You know, I have Christian liberty to go and do and partake. And maybe you do. Maybe that is an area of Christian liberty, but how about looking at these examples, and rather than seeing how far you can get towards this area of Christian liberty, see how far from sin you can get. How far away can you get from doing things that don't honor and don't please the Lord? Don't flirt with temptation. Men in our day and age, hear that again, don't flirt with temptation. Women, don't flirt with temptation. We ought to be fiercely committed to the Scripture, to finding what is God's will, to determining what He would have us to do, and then giving ourselves fully to doing it. We do that because we understand the Lord's holiness. We understand His standard, that His standard is so high that we will not attain it on this side of glory. Just because we won't attain it does not mean we don't strive after it with every ounce of strength that we have. So we rejoice in God's mercy, we obey His commands, and then we must consider His works. We consider His works. We see this kind of twice in verse 64 and then in verses 65 and 66. Kind of two instances of people considering God's works. Firstly, there's Zacharias says, at once, after he had declared his son's name was to be John, at once his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began speaking in praise of God. Now, again, the man hasn't spoken in months, maybe, maybe even close to a year. You would imagine there may be many things on his mind, many things that he may want to say, but when his mouth is open, when his tongue is loosed, he responds with praise to God. Is that how you respond when the Lord gives you opportunity to speak? In reading this, it's kind of reminiscent to the story of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel, he, he often would have his mouth stopped and shut. Ezekiel 3, verses um, 26 and 27 speak of this. In verse 27, the Lord said to Ezekiel, When I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, Thus says the Lord. 
Lord says, when I speak, I will open your mouth. Literally, I will give you opportunity and ability to speak, and you, Ezekiel, will say, thus saith the Lord, and you will speak and proclaim what God has said. It's really kind of in line with what Zacharias does, right? He has the ability to speak, and he responds by praising God, and then we'll see in his prophecy that he declares the Lord's redemption. He has the opportunity to speak, and he does, and he glorifies God in doing it. He gives the Lord praise in doing it. It's the praise of God and the declaration of the truth, always what's on your lips when you're given the opportunity to speak before the world. Or when you speak before worldly people, do you want to talk about anything except for Christ and truth and sin and righteousness? Friends, let's be like Zacharias. Let's be like Ezekiel. When the Lord gives opportunity, let us open our mouths and proclaim God's praises. May we open our mouths and declare, thus says the Lord, you must repent. You must turn from your sin and go to Christ in faith so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have life. Let's go and make disciples and teach them to obey all that the Lord has commanded. So that's one consideration of God's work. Zacharias responds in praise. Verses 65 and 66 show another consideration of God's work. Fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child Turn out to be, for the hand of the Lord is certainly with him. So fear and reverence is another consideration of the Lord's works. Now, does that catch your attention when you read that? That fear came on all, all of those living around. And these things were being discussed in the entire hill country of Judea. The people were wondering at what God could do, and they were fearing Him. Now, that reminds of the story, I think, of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. You may know that one well. They sell a piece of property. They tell their leaders that they're giving all of the proceeds of that property to the service of the church. They keep some back and and hide it. They're, They're punished by the Lord for that deceitfulness, not for keeping back, but for saying that they were giving all to the Lord. The Lord strikes them dead for their deceit and for their lying. In Acts chapter 5, it says, Then great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. And many in, in the area dared not come among the church. They dared not come among the camp of the church, but they wondered at it. They esteemed the church highly because they saw this miraculous work of God. Matthew Henry, I think, helpfully writes that if we have not a good hope built on the gospel, we may expect that its tidings will fill us with fear. Think about, think about what he's saying there. If you do not have a hope that is built upon Christ, when you hear the good news of Christ, it's not good news. It's bad news because when we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim justice and judgment. That if you don't come to Christ, you are condemned to hell for all eternity. So if your hope is not in Christ, you hear the good news of Christ and your response is fear. 
It's trembling. You're terrified because you know that hope is not mine. That justice poured out on Christ at the cross, that's what awaits me. That wrath is mine for all eternity. Were these people having proper fear of God or, or were they fearful of a God that they did not serve? Luke doesn't tell us. We, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is our response to the powerful working of God must be fear. It must be submission. It must be obedience. We should view our sin in light of God's holiness. And when you do that, that should cause you great fear. Okay, so, so I'm going I'm to kind of broaden that statement out in a second, but let's put that in a box and hold on to that as a thought. When you consider the holiness of God, your sin should cause you great trembling fear. Okay, so, so that's, a, that's a period there, but we're going to turn it into a comma as well, okay? So your sin causes a great fear in light of the holiness of God, but then that fear is relieved. Fear is taken away because Christ bore the curse. You do not fear God's wrath and punishment for your sin because all of His anger, all of His wrath, all of your condemnation was poured out on Christ at the cross. So your fear is relieved by the atoning work of God. So yes, saint, fear and tremble. Fear and tremble, but go to the cross. Go to the place where the blood of the Lamb was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and rejoice. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but know it's God who is willing and working within you for His good pleasure to display His glory in you as you are conformed to Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Don't be a fool. Don't despise wisdom. Don't despise the instruction of God's Word, but rather be full of the fear of Him so that you can be built up in the knowledge of God. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Fear begins that knowledge. So let's move forward to this prophecy of Zacharias and see the work that we are called to do, the response to God's providence that we are called to, in which we declare God's redemption. Declaring God's redemption. So the prophecy has two, two kind of parts. We see the work of Christ and then the work that John the Baptist is called to do. But look at verse 67. There's an important point to make here. It says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. Prophecy, in any form, whether, whether the Old Testament form or whatever form you may hold to that still exists today, it has but one goal, one thing that shows it is a biblical, God-honoring prophecy, a prophecy given by the Lord, and that is that it exalts and glorifies Christ. To be filled with the Spirit and to proclaim what that Spirit leads you to proclaim is to glorify the Lord. If your message doesn't glorify Christ, it's not a God-given prophecy. Zacharias is filled with the Spirit. He declares the coming Messiah. He begins by saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is a song of praise. 
This is Zacharias' response. It's praise. It's to declare the glorious works of God. He says, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant, just as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and remember His holy covenant. To remember the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant that we being rescued by the hand, from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before the Lord all of our days. So why a song of praise? Why a prophecy of praise? Because the Lord has accomplished redemption. Because he has accomplished redemption for his people. How is this completed? How is this work done? Hebrews 9, 12. It's not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Through the blood of Christ, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's why Zacharias is praising God. Because Christ has obtained. Now, think about this. This is before the coming of Christ. This is before the Messiah was even born. And yet, Zacharias is so filled with faith that he proclaims this in the past tense. It's a done deal because the Lord promised that he would do it, and Zacharias believes the promises and proclamations of God. This is the work of Christ, that he was laid down upon the altar, that his blood was spilt and poured out, and his blood covers the condemning stain of our sin. Though your sins may be as scarlet, washed in the blood of Christ, they will be white as snow. Christ is the horn of salvation. He is raised up to redeem His people, to be our Savior and our King. He is raised up in the line of David to offer us salvation from our enemies, to save us from those who hate us and malign us and attack us. In the Old Testament, we see so many stories of the Lord delivering His people from their enemies. But remember, so much of that story of Israel is but a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. And as the Lord delivered Israel from His enemies, what does He do for us? He has delivered us from the greatest of all enemies, Satan and sin and condemnation. In Christ, we see the greatest fulfillment of this delivery from our enemies. Because the power of sin and Satan are gone. They're broken. They're abolished. They're done away with. Friend, rejoice in that truth today. Praise the Lord for that glorious work that the stain of sin in your life is covered. It's covered by the precious blood of Christ. And when you think about the cost of that sin, hate that sin. Run from it. Flee from it. Understand the cost of your redemption and put on Christ every single day and walk by the Spirit and war against the flesh. The Lord has saved us that we might serve Him without fear, without fear and in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. So we've talked earlier about the fact that we must fear God, but He saves us so we don't 
fear him, that we might serve him without fear because we know that we are redeemed. Because we know that we are in Christ and you have that confidence to serve without fear because you walk in holiness and righteousness. So this prophecy is a song of praise, but it's also a declaration exhorting God's people to walk in holiness, to pursue righteousness, to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Consider your calling. You are rescued and saved and delivered from the enemy, not that you remain in your sin, but that you're transformed by the renewing of your mind to the end that you give your life as a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. As Christ laid down his life on the altar, so too does he call you to lay down your life. Colossians 1 tells us that he rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you live as one who's in the domain of darkness? Or do you live as one who's been transferred to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of life? Zacharias then shifts his attention. He, he looks briefly to his son. In verse um, 76, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to Give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Think about this calling of John in light of our own lives. We are not John the Baptist, okay? So let's get that straight. We are not forerunners of Christ. We are his ambassadors. We are his messengers in the world, called to proclaim his salvation just as John did. We're called to declare the Lord's salvation, the way to the forgiveness of sins, repent and turn to Christ just as John proclaimed. We're called to point all of our efforts to making Christ known, to making him known and making his commandments known and calling others to follow and obey. It must be like the Apostle Paul. Think about what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This, is, this has been something kind of on my mind throughout the week. He wrote there to the Corinthians that I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Think about if you say that to someone, what are you really meaning? How are you really practically going to live that out? That I have determined to know nothing, nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. What does that look like? Uh, how does that affect our lives? How do you live in light of such a statement? Because we should live according to that statement as well. I think firstly, it means that we display Christ-likeness. And that applies to any area of life that you would choose to apply it. In the home, husbands and wives, display Christ-likeness in how you love and serve your spouse. Parents, display Christ-likeness to your children, grandparents to your grandchildren. Show them what it means to live as Christ. I think it means to, to show them Christ, to speak of the work 
of Christ. Again, broadly apply, right? To, to know nothing but Christ means that we must speak of His work. We must declare what He's done. When you're in the workplace, go and preach and proclaim Christ. Tell your coworkers of what He's done for you and how He's changed your life and how they can find salvation too in the Savior if they will but repent and believe. So we display Christ's likeness, we speak of Christ's work, and we serve Christ's purposes. Okay? To, to know nothing among others except for Christ and Him crucified, you serve His purposes. Think about that in the life of the local church. The local church is the Lord's means of accomplishing His plans and purposes to the world of proclaiming Christ. That means that you are as involved as possible within the life and the ministries and the outreaches and everything that the church does. And that's a good thought to consider as we get close to the end of a year and the beginning of another. How involved are you in the life and the ministries of the local church? When we are gathered, are you here? When we go out to proclaim the gospel, are you out proclaiming and preaching Christ? Maybe you're uncomfortable with that. Maybe that's because you need to be more involved in the lives of your fellow believers and talk more of spiritual things so that you're more comfortable proclaiming spiritual things to others. You know, this, this is a safe zone. When you go out into the world and you go and preach Christ as we should and as we're called to do, yeah, you may get a real hard response and you might be nervous and uneasy about that. But guess what? That works a lot easier when you're in here week in and week out discussing these same spiritual matters with brothers and sisters because you're strengthened. The Lord puts that steel in in your spine. He gives you that courage to go out and proclaim Christ. But if you never speak of spiritual matters, guess what? When you go out into the world, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a challenge because you've never done it. You've never practiced speaking God's word. So it starts in the life of the church, among God's people, and then we go out. And again, coming back, this is serving Christ's purposes by involvement in His bride, the church. Is your life devoted to declaring the work of Christ? That's what Zacharias did. He declared God's redemption. There's a, a final point to see This will be very brief in verse 80. We see that we must submit to God's plans. When we respond to the Lord's providence, we must submit to His plans. Look look at this description of John the Baptist. It says, And the child continued to grow and to become strong in the Spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John was set apart from eternity past, From his mother's womb, he was filled with the Spirit. He was set apart by the Lord's divine providence. And what was his response? Yes, but one thing, it was submission. He he gave himself fully to the Lord's purposes. Think about that. He went and lived in obscurity. He understood that he was set apart by the Lord to declare the coming of the Messiah, but he lived in the deserts. He was a bizarre man by the world's standards in those days, But he lived in that obscurity because he was submitted to God's plan. The Lord showed him that he would come to Israel at the right time. But until then, he didn't claim a ministry to or for himself. He submitted 
to the Lord's plans. He worked out what the Lord was working within. That's easy to miss, I think, in the English translation here. It says the child continued to grow. That is in the active tense. He grew. He grew up stronger. And I think there's even the inference that he grew in spiritual things. He continued to grow and he continued to become strong in spirit. That is passive. So you have active on one hand, passive on the other. He worked out what the Lord was working within. So really that can kind of bring us full circle to this summary of how do we respond to divine providence. We rejoice in the Lord's mercy. We obey His commands. We consider His works. We declare His work of redemption. And all of that comes under this idea of being submitted fully to His plans. If you're not submitted to the Lord, you can't do any of those other things. You must be fully submitted, fully given in your life to the Lord's plans. We must walk in resolve. Y'all know one of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. That's our call in responding to the Lord's providence. It's to be steadfast and immovable, to abound in the works of the Lord, and to know that all we do serves His great purpose. We're not building our own kingdom. We're building His kingdom. We must follow Paul's exhortation to the Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You work all these things out, but it's all subservient to the great goal of God's pleasure and God's glory. That's our, that's our duty in life. That's our lot in life. If we are the Lord's people, it is to glorify Him and to bring Him pleasure and honor and praise. So as we consider the Lord's providence, may it be a ballast in our beaten and battered ships. May the Lord's providence put wind in our sails and may it press us to serve in the ways that are revealed here in Scripture. May it press us to serve and pursue Christ with all of our strength. That is because God is over all. He's in all and He is through all. He works all things together after the counsel of His own will but he works all things together for our good and for his glory. We join with him when we walk in light of this text. So may we respond properly to God's providence for the sake of our good and his glory. Let's pray.